0: i <laughs>
1: Good evening, dear listeners. Sorry for the late start. Um, had some problems with the bus. So, there you have it. Um, as always, thank you for joining us on this, the first day of autumn. Happy fall, everyone. Yeah, we, we can cut the music. Thank you. Anyway, this is episode four of Dread Time Stories. And, uh, again, I apologize for the late delay, for the late start. But, uh, we're here, that's all that matters. So, there you have it. Um. Anyway, uh, before we get started, I would just like to wish a very happy birthday to one of our dear listeners. Francie! Happy birthday, Francie. First day of autumn, that's a great birthday to have. Um, so, there you have it. This week, we're going to be uh, sharing two stories by Lafcadio Um And I put together some a brief uh, biography of Mr. Heron. Um Lafcadio Heron, born as Patrick Lafcadio Heron, was born to a Greek mother and an Irish father on a Greek island in 1850 eventually he made his way to japan in 1890 where he married setsuko koizumi who was the daughter of a samurai he became a japanese citizen adopting the japanese name of yakumu koizumi now one of the reasons why this is kind of important is that if you wish to be even today if you wish to become a full japanese citizen you have to adopt a japanese name i could not become a citizen a japanese citizen named adam hebert Not even, if I was writing my name in Japanese, Adamu Hibato. Um, Little fun fact there. Uh, He spent the remainder of his life in Japan, teaching at universities and schools, as well as writing books. He died in Tokyo at the age of 54 in 1904. So he wasn't that old when he died. He died of a heart failure, if I'm not mistaken. While Heron's non-fiction writing offered the West a rare glimpse of life in Japan, he is most well known for his writings of Japanese legends, folk tales, and ghost stories. These give the reader a glimpse of how things were in Japan before the Meiji Revolution, and uh, also allow a glimpse of a more mystical Japan from before it became westernized. His most famous work is likely Kaidan, a collection of Japanese ghost stories. This was later adapted as a Japanese anthology film with the same name in 1965. This film is considered one of the greatest films to ever come out of Japan, and also one of the greatest horror films ever made, and I do agree with that, with both those statements. Uh, tonight we'll be listening to two of the stories from uh, Heron, both of which are in the film, and one of which is from the book. The first will be in a cup of tea, followed by the story of Earless Hoichi. And Earless uh, Hoichi is basically kind of what they focused the marketing for the film on. Earless um, Hoichi is probably the most famous story from the from the anthology film. Um. And if I'm not mistaken, it's also the longest. But before we get to that, let's talk about my Dungeons & Dragons game. Um, so my group finally left after um, their their injured friend Ashram was teleported to the academy by the assistant headmaster and their teacher. They left the mountain town of Mistkeep and started to head towards Canemore, which is basically kind of a magical mecca. And, uh, along the way, they had an encounter with a stone giant named v and they, they made friends. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad my group did not just go straight to kill, kill, kill mode. You know, murder hobos. Um, so yeah, they made a friend. And, uh, after, you know, uh, we got, we kind of got a late start, so that was about all we had time for. There you have it, v the Giant. Anyway... I would also like to point out that we are trying some new software tonight, um, so please understand that there might be some um, issues with um, our, our audio, I am working on them right now. Hopefully that's working. Yeah. All right. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we are working on them, and ho- um, I- I'm really excited about this new software. It's called Soundshow. We used to, use, I used to use Soundbite, which um, my license ran out for, and I just don't have the money to get it back. <laughs> you know, even though I get paid tomorrow. So, uh, without further ado. Let us get ready um, to get to our two stories tonight, the story of Earless Hoichi and In a Cup of Tea. We'll be right back after this.
2: a Cup of Tea by Lafcadio Hearn. Read by Tony Scheinwein. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In a Cup of Tea by Lafcadio Hearn. Have you ever attempted to mount the tower stairway, spiring up through darkness? and in the heart of that darkness found yourself at the cobwebbed edge of nothing or have you followed some coast path cut along the face of a cliff only to discover yourself at a turn on the jagged verge of a break the emotional worth of such experience from a literary point of view is proved by the force of the sensations aroused and by the vividness with which they are remembered now there have been curiously preserved in old japanese storybooks certain fragments of fiction that produce an almost similar emotional experience. Perhaps the writer was lazy, perhaps he had a quarrel with the publisher, perhaps he was suddenly called away from his little table and never came back. Perhaps death stopped the writing-brush in the very middle of a sentence. But no mortal man can ever tell us exactly why these things were left unfinished. I select a typical example. On the fourth day of the first month of the Third Tenwa, that is to say, about two hundred and twenty years ago, the Lord Nakagawa Sado, while on his way to make a New Year's visit, halted with his train at a tea house in Hakusan, in the Hongo district of Yedo. While the party were resting there, one of the Lord's attendants, a Wakato named Sekinai, feeling very thirsty, filled for himself a large water cup with tea. He was raising the cup to his lips when he suddenly perceived, in the transparent confusion, the image or reflection of a face that was not his own. Startled, he looked around, but could see no one near him. The face in the tea appeared to be the face of a young samurai. It was strangely distinct, and very handsome, delicate as the face of a girl, and it seemed the reflection of a living face, for the eyes and the lips were moving. Bewildered by this mysterious apparition, Sekinai threw away the tea and carefully examined the cup. It proved to be a very cheap water-cup, with no artistic devices of any sort. He found and filled another cup, and again the face appeared in the tea. He then ordered fresh tea and refilled the cup, and once more the strange face appeared, this time with a mocking smile. But Sekinai did not allow himself to be frightened. "'Whoever you are,' he muttered, "'you shall delude me no further.' Then he swallowed the tea, face and all, and went on his way, wondering whether he had swallowed a ghost.'
3: Late in the evening, the story of Mimi Nash.
2: In a Cup of Tea by Lafcadio Hearn. Read by Tony Scheinman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In a Cup of Tea by Lafcadio Hearn. Have you ever attempted to mount some old tower stairway, spiring up through darkness, and in the heart of that darkness found yourself at the cobwebbed edge of nothing? Or have you followed some coast path cut along the face of a cliff, only to discover yourself at a turn on the jagged verge of a break? The emotional worth of such experience, from a literary point of view, is proved by the force of the sensations aroused, and by the vividness with which they are remembered. Now there have been curiously preserved, in old Japanese storybooks certain fragments of fiction that produce an almost similar emotional experience. Perhaps the writer was lazy. Perhaps he had a quarrel with the publisher. Perhaps he was suddenly called away from his little table and never came back. Perhaps death stopped the writing-brush in the very middle of a sentence. But no mortal man can ever tell us exactly why these things were left unfinished. I select a typical example on the fourth day of the first month of the third tenwa that is to say about two hundred and twenty years ago the lord nakagawa seido while on his way to make a new year's visit halted with his train at a tea-house in hakusan in the hongo district of yedo while the party were resting there one of the lord's attendants awakato named sekinai feeling very thirsty filled for himself a large water-cup with tea He was raising the cup to his lips when he suddenly perceived, in the transparent yellow infusion, the image or reflection of a face that was not his own. Startled he looked around, but could see no one near him. The face in the tea appeared, from the coiffure, to be the face of a young samurai. It was strangely distinct, and very handsome, delicate as the face of a girl, and it seemed the reflection of a living face, for the eyes and the lips were moving. Bewildered by this mysterious apparition, Sekinai threw away the tea and carefully examined the cup. It proved to be a very cheap water-cup, with no artistic devices of any sort. He found and filled another cup, and again the face appeared in the tea. He then ordered fresh tea and refilled the cup, and once more the strange face appeared, this time with a mocking smile. But Sekinai did not allow himself to be frightened. "'Whoever you are,' he muttered, "'you shall delude me no further.' Then he swallowed the tea, face and all, and went on his way, wondering whether he had swallowed a ghost. Late in the evening of the same day, while on watch in the palace of the lord Nakagawa, Sekinai was surprised by the soundless coming of a stranger into the apartment. This stranger, a richly dressed young samurai, seated himself directly in front of Sekinai, and, saluting the Wakato with a slight bow, observed, I am Shikibu Henai.' met you to-day for the first time. You do not seem to recognize me." He spoke in a very low but penetrating voice, and Sekinai was astonished to find before him the same sinister, handsome face of which he had seen and swallowed—the apparition in a cup of tea. It was smiling now, as the phantom had smiled, but the steady gaze of the eyes above the smiling lips was at once a challenge and an insult. "'No, I do not recognize you,' returned Sekinai, angry but cool. "'And perhaps you will now be good enough to inform me how you obtained admission to this house?' In feudal times the residence of a lord was strictly guarded at all hours, and no one could enter unannounced, except through some unpardonable negligence on the part of the armed watch. "'Ah! You do not recognize me!' exclaimed the visitor, in a tone of irony, drawing a little nearer as he spoke. No, you do not recognize me. Yet you took upon yourself this morning to do me a deadly injury. Sekinai instantly seized the tanto at his girdle and made a fierce thrust at the throat of the man. But the blade seemed to touch no substance. Simultaneously and soundlessly, the intruder leaped sideward to the chamber wall and through it. The wall showed no trace of his exit. He had traversed it only as the light of a candle passes through lantern paper. When Sekinai made report of the incident his recital astonished and puzzled the retainers. No stranger had been seen either to enter or leave the palace at the hour of the occurrence, and no one in the service of the Lord Nakagawa had ever heard of the name Shikibu Henai. On the following night Sekinai was off duty and remained at home with his parents. At a rather late hour, he was informed that some strangers had called at the house and desired to speak with him for a moment. Taking his sword, he went to the entrance, and there found three armed men, apparently retainers, waiting in front of the doorstep. The three bowed respectfully to Sekinai, and one of them said, "'Our names are Matsuoka Bungo, Tsuchibashi Bungo, and Okamura Heiroku. We are retainers of the noble Shikibu Heinai. When our master last night deigned to pay you a visit, you struck him with a sword. He was much will hurt.' and has been obliged to go to the hot springs, where his wound is now being treated. But on the sixteenth day of the coming month he will return, and he will then fitly repay you for the injury done him. Without waiting to hear more, Sekinai leaped out, sword in hand, and slashed right and left at the stranger's. But the three men sprang to the wall of the adjoining building, and flitted up the wall like shadows, and— Here the old narrative breaks off. The rest of the story existed only in some brain that has been dust for a century. I am able to imagine several possible endings, but none of them would satisfy an Occidental imagination. I prefer to let the reader attempt to decide for himself the probable consequence of swallowing a soul. End of In a Cup of Tea
3: The Story of Miminashi Hoichi by Lafcadio Hearn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Story of Miminashi Hoichi by Lafcadio Hearn. More than 700 years ago at Dano in the Straits of Shimonoseki, was fought the last battle of the long contest between the Hekei or Taira clan, and the Genji, or Minamoto clan. There, the Heike perished utterly, with their women and children, and their infant emperor likewise, now remembered as Antoku Teno, and that sea and shore have been haunted for 700 years. Elsewhere, I told you about the strange crabs found there, called Heke crabs, which have human faces on their backs and are said to be the spirits of the Heke warriors. But there are many strange things to be seen and heard along that coast. On dark nights, thousands of ghostly fires hover about the beach or flit above the waves, pale lights, which the fishermen call onibi or demon fires, and, whenever the winds are up, a sound of great shouting comes from that sea, like a clamor of battle. In former years, the Heike were much more restless than they are now. They would rise about ships passing in the night and try to sink them, and at all times they would watch for swimmers to pull them down. It was in order to appease those dead that the Buddhist temple Amidaji was built at Akamagaseki. A cemetery also was made close by, near the beach, and within it were set up monuments inscribed with the names of the drowned emperor and of his great vassals, and Buddhist services were regularly performed there on behalf of the spirits of them. After the temple had been built and the tombs erected, the Heike gave less trouble than before, but they continued to do queer things at intervals, proving that they had not found the perfect peace. Some centuries ago there lived at Akamagaseki a blind man named Hoichi, who was famed for his skill in recitation and in playing upon the biwa. From childhood, he had been trained to recite and to play, and while yet a lad, he had surpassed his teachers. As a professional biwa-hoshi, he became famous chiefly by his recitations of the history of the Heike and the Genji, and it is said that when he sang the song of the Battle of Dano-Ura, even the goblins, Kijin, could not refrain from tears. At the outset of his career, Hoichi was very poor, But he found a good friend to help him. The priest of the Amadaji was fond of poetry and music, and he often invited Hoichi to the temple to play and recite. Afterwards, being much impressed by the wonderful skill of the lad, the priest proposed that Hoichi should make the temple his home, and this offer was gratefully accepted. Hoichi was given a room in the temple building and in return for food and lodging, He was required only to gratify the priest with a musical performance on certain evenings, when otherwise disengaged. One summer night, the priest was called away to perform a Buddhist service at the house of a dead parishioner, and he went there with his acolyte, leaving Hoichi alone in the temple. It was a hot night, and the blind man sought to cool himself on the veranda before his sleeping room. The veranda overlooked a small garden in the rear of the Amadagite. There, Hoichi waited for the priest's return, and tried to relieve his solitude by practicing upon his biwa. Midnight passed, and the priest did not appear, but the atmosphere was still too warm for comfort within doors, and Hoichi remained outside. At last he heard steps approaching from the back gate. Somebody crossed the garden, advanced to the veranda, and halted directly in front of him. But it was not the priest. A deep voice called the blind man's name abruptly and unceremoniously, in the manner of a samurai summoning an inferior. Hoichi. Height answered the blind man, frightened by the menace in the voice. I am blind. I cannot know who calls. There's nothing to fear, the stranger exclaimed, speaking more gently. I am stopping near this temple and have been sent to you with the message. My present lord, a person of exceedingly high rank, is now staying in a Kamagaseki, with many noble attendants. He wished to view the scene of the Battle of Danaura, and today he visited that place. Having heard of your skill in reciting the story of the battle, he now desires to hear your performance. So, you will take your biwa and come with me at once to the house where the august assembly is waiting. In those times, the order of a samurai was not to be lightly disobeyed. Hoichi donned his sandals, took his biwa, and went away with the stranger who guided him deftly but obliged him to walk very fast the hand that guided was iron and the clank of the warrior's stride proved him fully armed probably some palace guard on duty hoichi's first alarm was over he began to imagine himself in good luck for remembering the retainer's assurance about a person of exceedingly high rank he thought that the lord who wished to hear the recitation could not be less than a daimyo of the first class Presently the samurai halted, and Hoichi became aware that they had arrived at a large gateway, and he wondered, for he could not remember any large gate in that part of the town, except the main gate of the Amadaji. Kaimon, the samurai called, and there was a sound of unbarring, and the twain passed on. They traversed a space of garden, and halted again before some entrance, and the retainer cried in a loud voice, Within there I have brought Hoichi. Then came sounds of feet hurrying, and screens sliding, and rain doors opening, and voices of women in converse. By the language of the women, Hoichi knew them to be domestics in some noble household, but he could not imagine to what place he had been conducted. Little time was allowed him for conjecture. After he had been helped to mount several stone steps, upon the last of which he was told to leave his sandals. A woman's hand guided him along interminable reaches of polished blanking, and round pillared angles, too many to remember, and over widths amazing of matted floor, into the middle of some vast apartment. There he thought that many great people were assembled. The sound of the rustling of silk was like the sound of leaves in a forest. He also heard a great humming of voices, talking in undertones, and the speech was the speech of courts. Oichi was told to put himself at ease, and he found a kneeling cushion ready for him. After having taken his place upon it and tuned his instrument, the voice of a woman, whom he divined to be the rojo, or matron in charge of the female service, addressed him, saying, It is now required that the history of the heke be recited to the accompaniment of the biwa. Now, the entire recital would have required a time of many nights therefore hoichi ventured a question as the whole of the story is not soon told what portion is it augustly desired that i now recite the woman's voice made answer recite the story of the battle at Danaura, for the pity of it is the most deep then hoichi lifted up his voice and chanted the chant of the fight on the bitter sea wonderfully making his biwata sound like the straining of oars and the rushing of ships the whirr and the hissing of arrows, the shouting and trampling of men, the crashing of steel upon helmets, the plunging of slain in the flood. And to left and right of him, in the pauses of his playing, he could hear voices murmuring praise. How marvelous an artist! Never in our own province was playing heard like this. Not in all the empire is there another singer like Hoichi then fresh carriage came to him and he played and sang yet better than before and a hush of wonder deepened about him but when at last he came to tell the fate of the fair and helpless the piteous perishing of the women and children and the death leap of niinoama with the imperial infant in her arms then all the listeners uttered together one long long shuddering cry of anguish and thereafter they wept and wailed so loudly and so wildly that the blind man was frightened by the violence and the grief that he had made. For much time the sobbing and the wailing continued, but gradually the sounds of lamentation died away, and again, in the great stillness that followed, Hoichi heard the voice of the woman whom he supposed to be the Rojo. She said, Although we had been assured that you were a very skillful player upon the Biwa, and without an equal in recitative, we did not know that anyone could be so skillful as you have proved yourself to-night. Our Lord has been pleased to say that he intends to bestow upon you a fitting reward, but he desires that you shall perform before him once every night for the next six nights, after which time he will probably make his august return journey. Tomorrow night, therefore, you are to come here at the same hour. The retainer who to-night conducted you will be sent for you, There is another matter about which i have been ordered to inform you it is required that you shall speak to no one of your visits here during the time of our lord's august sojourn at akamagaseki as he is traveling incognito he commands that no mention of these things be made you are now free to go back to your temple after hoichi had duly expressed his thanks a woman's hand conducted him to the entrance of the house where the same retainer who had before guided him was waiting to take him home. The retainer led him to the veranda at the rear of the temple and there bade him farewell. It was almost dawn when Hoichi returned, but his absence from the temple had not been observed, as the priest, coming back at a very late hour, had supposed him asleep. During the day, Hoichi was able to take some rest, and he said nothing about his strange adventure. In the middle of the following night, the samurai again came for him and led him to the august assembly where he gave another recitation with the same success that had attended his previous performance. But during the second visit, his absence from the temple was accidentally discovered, and after his return in the morning, he was summoned to the presence of the priest, who said to him, in a tone of kindly reproach, We have been very anxious about you, friend Hoichi. To go out blind and alone at so late an hour is dangerous. Why did you go without telling us? I could have ordered a servant to accompany you. And where have you been? Hoichi answered evasively, Pardon me, kind friend. I had to attend to some private business, and I could not arrange the matter at any other hour. The priest was surprised rather than pained by Hoichi's reticence. He felt it to be unnatural, and suspected something wrong. He feared that the blind lad had been bewitched or deluded by some evil spirits. He did not ask any more questions but he privately instructed the men servants of the temple to keep watch upon Hoichi's movements and to follow him in case that he should again leave the temple after dark. On the very next night, Hoichi was seen to leave the temple, and the servants immediately lighted their lanterns and followed after him. But it was a rainy night and very dark, and before the temple folks could get to the roadway, Hoichi had disappeared. Evidently, he walked very fast. A strange thing, considering his blindness, for the road was in a bad condition. The men hurried through the streets, making inquiries at every house where Hoichi was accustomed to visit, but nobody could give them any news of him. At last, as they were returning to the temple by way of the shore, they were startled by the sound of a biwa, furiously played, in the cemetery of the Amadaji, except for some ghostly fires, such as usually flitted there on dark nights, all was blackness in that direction. But the men at once hastened to the cemetery, and there, by the help of their lanterns, they discovered Hoichi, sitting alone in the rain before the memorial tomb of Antoko Tano, making his biwo resound and loudly chanting the chant of the Battle of Danaura. And behind him and about him, and everywhere above the tombs, the fires of the dead were burning like candles." Never before had so great a host of Oni-bi appeared in the sight of mortal man. Hoichi-san, Hoichi-san, the servants called. You are bewitched, Hoichi-san. But the blind man did not seem to hear. Strenuously he made his biwa to rattle and ring and clang. More and more wildly he chanted the chant of the Battle of Danaura. They caught hold of him. They shouted into his ear, Hoichi-san, Hoichi-san come home with us at once. Reprovingly he spoke to them, to interrupt me in such a manner before this august assembly will not be tolerated. Whereat, in spite of the weirdness of the thing, the servants could not help laughing. Sure that he had been bewitched, they now seized him, and pulled him up on his feet, and by main force hurried him back to the temple, where he was immediately relieved of his wet clothes by order of the priest. Then the priest insisted upon a full explanation of his friend's astonishing behavior. Hoichi long hesitated to speak, but at last, finding that his conduct had really alarmed and angered the good priest, he decided to abandon his reserve, and he related everything that had happened from the time of the first visit of the samurai. The priest said, Hoichi, my poor friend, you are now in great danger. How unfortunate that you did not tell me all this before your wonderful skill in music, has indeed brought you into strange trouble. By this time you must be aware that you have not been visiting any house whatever, but have been passing your nights in the cemetery among the tombs of the Heike, and it was before the memorial tomb of Antoku Tenno that our people found you tonight, sitting in the rain. All that you have been imagining was illusion, except the calling of the dead. By once obeying them, you have put yourself in their power, if you obey them again, after what has already occurred, they will tear you in pieces. But they would have destroyed you sooner or later in any event. Now, I shall not be able to remain with you tonight. I am called away to perform another service. But before I go, it will be necessary to protect your body by writing holy texts upon it. Before sundown, the priest and his acolyte stripped Hoichi. Then, with their writing brushes, they traced upon his breast and back, head and face and neck, limbs and hands and feet, even upon the soles of his feet and upon all parts of his body. The text of the Holy Sutra called Hanya Shinkyo. When this had been done, the priest instructed Hoichi, saying, Tonight, as soon as I go away, you must seat yourself on the veranda and wait. You will be called. But whatever may happen, do not answer and do not move. Say nothing and sit still, as if meditating. If you stir or make any noise, you will be torn asunder. Do not get frightened, and do not think of calling for help, because no help could save you. If you do exactly as I tell you, the danger will pass, and you will have nothing more to fear. After dark, the priest and the acolyte went away, and Hoichi seated himself on the veranda according to the instructions given him. He laid his biwa on the planking beside him and assuming the attitude of meditation remained quite still taking care not to cough or to breathe audibly for hours he stayed thus then from the roadway he heard the steps approaching they passed the gate crossed the garden approached the veranda and stopped directly in front of him hoichi the deep voice called but the blind man held his breath and sat motionless hoichi grimly called the voice a second time Then, a third time, savagely, Hoichi. Hoichi remained as still as a stone, and the voice grumbled, No answer. That won't do. Must see where the fellow is. There was a noise of heavy feet mounting upon the veranda. The feet approached deliberately, halted beside him. Then, for long minutes, during which Hoichi felt his whole body shake to the beating of his heart, there was dead silence. At last the gruff voice muttered close to him, Here's the Biwa, but of the Biwa player I see only two ears. So that explains why he did not answer. He had no mouth to answer with. There is nothing left of him but his ears. Now to my lord those ears I will take, in proof that the august commands have been obeyed as far as was possible. At that instant Hoichi felt his ears gripped by fingers of iron and torn off. Great as the pain was, he gave no cry. The heavy footfalls receded along the veranda, descended into the garden, passed out onto the roadway, and ceased. From either side of his head, the blind man felt a warm, thick trickling, but he dared not lift his hands. Before sunrise, the priest came back. He hastened at once to the veranda in the rear, stepped and slipped upon something clammy, and uttered a cry of horror. For he saw by the light of his lantern that the clamminess was blood but he perceived hoichi sitting there in the attitude of meditation with the blood still oozing from his wounds my poor hoichi cried the startled priest what is this you have been hurt at the sound of his friend's voice the blind man felt safe he burst out sobbing and tearfully told his adventure of the night poor poor hoichi the priest exclaimed all my fault, my very grievous fault. Everywhere upon your body the holy text had been written, except upon your ears. I trusted my acolyte to do that part of the work, and it was very, very wrong of me not to have made sure that he had done it. Well, the matter cannot now be helped. We can only try to heal your hurts as soon as possible. Cheer up, friend. The danger is now well over. You will never again be troubled by those visitors. With the aid of a good doctor, Hoichi soon recovered from his injuries. The story of his strange adventure spread far and wide and soon made him famous. Many noble persons went to Akamagaseki to hear him recite, and large presents of money were given to him, so that he became a wealthy man. But from the time of his adventure, he was known only by the appellation of Miminashi Hoichi, Hoichi the Earless. End of The Story of Miminashi Hoichi by Lafcadio Hearn.
0: Truth is
4: stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not.
5: A girl in the Yuruk tribe in Turkey can become engaged only once in her lifetime. This rule holds even if her fiancé dies before the wedding. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the statue that was executed for murder. In the 5th century B.C., a statue erected to Theogenes of Tassos, Greece... for winning 1,300 Olympic awards... was flogged nightly by a jealous rival. One night, while the jealous man was beating the statue... it toppled over and crushed him to death. Because the statue had killed a man, the act had to be punished... Therefore, the marble figure was tried for murder, convicted, and sentenced to be thrown into the sea, thus executing it for murder. Believe it or not.
4: Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not.
5: Bono was a French dwarf. He was only 18 inches tall at the age of 11. However, he ate 40 large cucumbers, 30 figs, and a whole watermelon for dessert each day. Believe it or not, in a moment, I'll tell you about the guard who was faithful even after death. Stephanos was a guard at the Monastery of St. Catherine on biblical Mount Sinai. On his deathbed in the year 580, he pleaded to be permitted to continue his services. This unusual request was honored, and so after his death, Stephanos was placed outside the House of the Dead. There, his fully clothed skeleton still guards the entrance today, a macabre reminder of the loyalty of a man many years after his death. Believe it or not. <laughs>
1: We are back, sorry about the technical difficulties, voice meter is giving some issues, um, so yeah, not super happy about that, anyway, uh, let, we, we can kill the music, uh, there we go, uh, that was In a Cup of Tea and um, Mininashi Hoichi. Uh, by Luff Cadyo Heron. And, and again, brilliant writing by, you know, I, I, and that's not to say he made these stories up. This was a collection of folk tales and ghost stories that he, that he, um. I mean, he wrote them in his own words. But we got to make sure where we're being accurate, you know. Um. Anyway, we're going to get to our episode of the Magnus Archives tonight. Um, and this, this is a good one. This is one of my favorite ones, um, that I've listened to so far, and it's called, uh, Page Turner. And so, uh, yeah, we're gonna get to that. I, I hope everyone, I'm glad that, uh, everyone is enjoying the show. Um, and I'm going to take the chance to announce that, uh, or take the opportunity to announce that, um, we have started a Patreon, so if you enjoy this show, and you would like me to be able to deal up more shows, uh, increase the quality of my broadcasts, etc., and, and of course, um, ...my my field reporting, which is mostly related to AWA, where I've been able to uh, interview some very prominent voice actors. Um, Please consider. uh, Basically, what we're going to do is, every month, once I get my first, um, once I start getting uh, patrons, every month we will do a um, bonus show it won't include any of our serials, it'll just be a longer story, some random stuff I pick, OTR episode, and then we'll alternate, every other month I'll do um, like podcasting tutorials, podcasting fundamentals, you know, what do you need to be a good podcaster, how do you be a good podcaster, and radio personality, Um, so there's that. So, we'll have that information at the, uh, at, in the show notes and at the end of the show. A little sign for you to consider there. And for now, we are going to get to our story tonight. Or to our um, episode of the Magnus Archives.
6: Rusty Quill
0: Presents
6: Rusty Quill Presents The Magnus Archives Episode 4 Page Turner Swain regarding a book briefly in his possession in the winter of 2012. Original statement given June 28th, 2013. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I work as a theatre technician in various venues around the West End, I mainly deal with lights, but a lot of the smaller venues can't afford large crews for their productions, so you end up doing a little bit of everything. I guess that's not directly relevant to my experience, but I just want you to know that I'm not some crazy person wandering in off the street. I work, I do practical things with my hands, and I am not prone to crazed flights of fancy. That day I was going to see a matinee performance of the Trojan Women at the Gate Theatre up in Notting Hill. A friend of mine, Catherine Mendez, was in it and had been trying to get me to come to see it for a while. We'd worked together on a production of The Seagull a couple of years before, and had had a bit of a thing going back then. At this point I had just become single, so was keen to meet up and see if any of the old spark remained. I ended up going along on the afternoon of Saturday the 10th of November. I remember the date exactly. There had been a lot of back and forth about it, since we were both involved in separate shows at the time, making evenings difficult.' So, on Saturday afternoon, I found myself in Notting Hill Gate, killing an hour or two before the show was due to start. Now, Notting Hill is not somewhere I go often, as it tends towards the pricey, even for London, and I'm not sure how much you know about theatre techs, but we're not generally an overpaid profession. Still, I had some vague memories of there being an Oxfam charity shop somewhere nearby, as I'd previously bought quite a nice old military tunic there, which remains one of my favourite jackets. I found it without any problems and spent 10 minutes or so looking over the clothes and knick-knacks but was a bit disappointed. It was smaller than I remembered and just seemed to contain the same tedious curios as every other charity shop. I still had some time to kill though, so I decided to have a look through their books, something I rarely bother doing usually. I found the book on the science fiction and fantasy shelf. At first I assumed it was some sort of faux leather special edition and I was sure whoever put it out for sale must have done the same, because the price on it was only £4. There was something about it that made me take another look, though, and picking it up, I felt the binding, and realised it might well have been bound in real leather, probably calf, given how soft it was. I'm not an expert on books by any means, but it seemed old, and I thought it might have been hand-bound, as the pages were slightly uneven. There was no dust wrapper on it and the front had no title, but embossed on the spine in faded gold letters were the words Ex Altiora. I did some Latin in school when I was a child, but I haven't had much cause to use it since, so you'll have to forgive me if my translations don't make much sense, but I believe it meant from higher or out of the heights. I was astounded, to say the least. The book was clearly worth far more than it was being sold for. If the shop clerk who put it out had been paying any attention, it would have been in the glass case where they kept those things people donated that were actually valuable. I had a flick through, but it seemed to be entirely written in Latin, so I didn't have much luck discerning what it was about. The only English seemed to be a bookplate at the front that read, From the Library of Jürgen Leitner, although no author was listed. There were also several black and white illustrations, woodcuts I think, each showing a mountain or a cliff. Where in one picture, what appeared to be an empty night sky. I felt an odd sensation when I looked at that image, as though, simple as it was, I was about to fall into it. My stomach gave an odd jolt, almost causing me to drop the book in the middle of Oxfam. I made up my mind to buy it. Even if I never figured out how to read the thing, it was clearly worth a lot more than they were selling it for. I felt like a bit of an ass for not letting them know how valuable it was, almost like I was stealing money from the charity but in the end I realised that it wasn't my job to set the prices in this shop, and besides, this book absolutely fascinated me. The woman working the till didn't even raise an eyebrow when I brought it over and paid my £4. I headed out, hoping to find a café where I could sit and have another look through, but it was then that I noticed the time. I'd somehow managed to spend an hour in that shop, now I was very nearly late for Catherine's play. I made it in time, luckily, though I had to run a bit. The show was fine. I've never been a particular fan of Greek plays, and this interpretation was not the one to win me round to them. Catherine was excellent, of course, but the rest of the show was, quite frankly, a bit pedestrian. Still, I'm not a theatre critic, and I wasn't exactly paying it my full attention, as I was convinced there was a problem with the stage lights. Throughout the show, I kept getting the faintest smell of ozone, and was worried. The only other time I'd smelled that in the theatre was when one of my stagehands had accidentally ordered the wrong sort of light, and we'd ended up installing a projector with a xenon mercury lamp, the sort used to sterilise medical equipment with UV. I spotted the issue before anything happened, but I still remember that intense ozone smell. Still, no one else seemed to notice it, and I couldn't see anything in their light setup that would have caused the odour, so I tried my best to ignore it. After the performance was finished, Catherine and I grabbed a quick dinner before heading to our respective evening shows. I was disappointed to discover that whatever attraction there had been between us seemed to have vanished completely, and while we spent a pleasant enough couple of hours together, it was obvious that neither of us wanted to take it any further. I did show her the book, though. She knew even less Latin than I did, but was impressed. She said it looked valuable and that I should take it somewhere to be appraised, although she didn't look through it in any detail as the pictures triggered her vertigo for some reason. Nothing of note occurred after I left, I did my show, a production of Much Ado About Nothing, down at the Courtyard Theatre, with no problems. I returned home late, having gone for a drink with the stage manager and a couple of the actors, and felt far too awake to just go to bed. So I poured myself a small gin and tonic and decided to look through this book in more detail. Oddly enough, I somehow hadn't learned any more Latin since i bought it twelve hours before, so reading it was still out of the question. But I went through and had a closer look at those woodcuts. There were about a dozen that I found, mostly mountains and cliffs, but one appeared to be a tower, looming over the surrounding countryside at an odd angle, with tiny birds just visible circling the summit. And then there was that picture of an empty sky, I've never had any fear of heights, but staring at that picture, I felt... I don't know, really. I just couldn't look at it for too long. It seemed to open forever, nothing to do but fall into it. It was even stranger as there wasn't much to the picture itself, except for black ink and a few stylized stars. But something in the proportions just had that effect on me. I decided that maybe Catherine had been right and it might be valuable as an antique, so I did some research to try and find out more about it. Latin fell out of favour as a language for academic texts in the 18th century, and I really doubted the thing was that old. Since then, it was only really used for religious texts, but the book certainly didn't look like it was full of prayers. Searching ex altiora online didn't do much good. The phrase was used in a few old prayers. There was a company called altiora and something in Italian about football but nothing that looked even remotely like it related to my book. Searching for Jurgen Leitner wasn't much better. It brought up an entry for an Austrian musician and a few Facebook pages, although they all seemed to have umlauts in their names, unlike the one in the book, and none of them looked like the sorts to have a library full of strange Latin texts. The only thing I found that looked even remotely relevant was a listing on eBay from 2007. The auction was titled Key of Solomon, 1863 – Owned by McGregor Mathers and Jorgen Leitner, and had been won for just over twelve hundred pounds by a deactivated user, G R Bookworm 1818. There was no picture or description, just the title and the winning bid. I decided to call it a night and go to bed. I think I had a nightmare, but I don't remember the details. I slept in very late the next day, and by the time I awoke, there wasn't much daylight left but I spent the hours until my show contacting book dealers that I'd looked up online. All of them put the book's age between 100 and 150 years, and said it looked like it had been custom-bound. Most offered to buy it off me for a few hundred pounds, but at this point I was more interested in information about it. Unfortunately, none of them had heard of it before, or seemed at all familiar with its contents. The last seller I went to did recognise the name Jürgen Leitner, though. She told me Leitner had been a big name in the literary scene during the 1990s, some rich Scandinavian recluse paying absurd amounts of money for whatever books took his fancy. It was said he'd often have books custom-bound after providing a manuscript, or even commission authors to produce works to his brief, although she didn't actually know any writers who had worked with Leitner. He dropped from public view somewhere around 95. but she recalled he used to have extensive dealings with pinhole books down in Morden and gave me the details for Mary Key, who owned it. I went and I did my show after that, the last night of the run, in point of fact, but though I didn't miss a single lighting cue, all through it I just couldn't take my mind off the book. I felt as though there was something I was missing just beyond my grasp, and all throughout I could detect that same faint smell of ozone. Or was it ozone? There was something else there, Something I knew, but could not remember. Every time I felt I was close, I was overcome with a dizziness and nausea that threatened to topple me over. I skipped the cast party afterwards, instead going for a long walk to clear my head in the cold November air. I don't know how long I walked for. It must have been hours, but it felt right, like it was all I could do. Walking felt as natural as falling. It was only when a man shouted at me for almost walking into him that I stopped and took stock of my surroundings. I had no idea where I was. I took out my phone to find the nearest station and saw that I was only a street away from Morden. I felt dizzy all of a sudden, and when I looked at the building I was stood in front of, I was not in the least bit surprised to see a brass plaque reading, Pinhole Books, By Appointment Only, Next to an unmarked door of dark stained wood, I rang the doorbell and waited. The woman who opened the door wasn't at all what I was expecting. She was very old and painfully thin, but her head was completely clean-shaven, and every square inch of skin I could see was tattooed over with closely written words in a script I didn't recognise. She stood at the bottom of a flight of stairs, and from the top I could hear the sound of death metal blaring out of some powerful speakers. I wondered for a moment if she got complaints from the neighbours playing it so loudly at two o'clock in the morning and realised with a start that it was actually two o'clock in the morning. I apologised for disturbing her so late and asked if she was Mary Key. She just snorted and asked in a decidedly unfriendly manner if I had an appointment. I reached into my bag and pulled out Ex Altiora, opening it to show Lightner's name on the bookplate. At this, her eyes seemed to light up and she turned around to walk up the stairs. She didn't shut the door behind her, so I took this as an invitation and followed her up. We entered a cramped set of rooms, with books piled high in every conceivable corner, almost to a point where I had to be careful following her through the labyrinth so as not to take a wrong turn. She was talking, I realised, and didn't seem to care if I heard her over the music or not. She said it had been a long time since she'd found a lightener, although... Her Gerard kept an eye out. She gave no elaboration as to who her Gerard might have been. This strange old woman didn't seem interested in actually reading or looking at my book in depth, but asked instead if I wanted to see hers. I just nodded. I was out of my depth here, but I had no idea what in. I just knew that I hadn't smelled ozone since I arrived. I followed Mary Key into a dingy study, It was small to begin with, but every wall was completely covered with packed bookshelves, crowding even further into the space. Immediately my host began to scan them intently, muttering to herself about where he would have put it. I stood there awkwardly, not wanting to stare at the old woman, but also hesitant to do anything else. Aside from the bookshelves, there was little in the room other than a worn desk with a very old-looking chair behind it. The desk was covered with papers, as well as fishing wire and a safety razor. I think it says something about my state of mind at this point, that I didn't even give those items a second thought at the time. Instead, my attention was fixed on a picture, attached to the one small area of wall not covered by bookshelves. It was a painting of an eye. Very detailed, and at first I would have said almost photorealistic. But the more I looked at it, the more I saw the patterns and symmetries that formed into a single image, until I was so focused on them that I started to have difficulty seeing the eye itself. Written below it were three lines in fine green calligraphy. Grant us the sight that we may not know. Grant us the scent that we may not catch. Grant us the sound that we may not call. At this point, Mary Key returned with two cups of tea, I hadn't even noticed her leave, nor had I requested the cup of black tea she pressed into my hand. She asked if I liked the painting, and told me that her Gerard had done it. Said he was a very talented artist. I mumbled something approving, I don't remember exactly what, and looked at the cup of tea in my hand. She hadn't offered me any milk, and was now busily searching the shelves again, her own cup forgotten on the desk. I tried to drink the stuff out of politeness, but... It tasted foul, like dust and smoke. I think it might have once been Lapsang Souchong, but if so, it must have been years old. Finally, Mary seemed to find the book she was looking for and took it from the shelf. She handed me a book that, at first glance, appeared to be almost identical to my copy of Ex Altiora, except that the leather was in slightly better condition. There was no title on this one, but opening it, I could see that it was written in letters I didn't recognise. There were no illustrations in this book, and the only English words I could find were on the bookplate from the library of Jorgen Leitner, just like mine. Mary told me that the writing was in Sanskrit, but when I asked her if she could read it, she just started laughing. She took the book back and walked over to the desk where the room's single unshaded light bulb cast stark shadows across the floor. She very deliberately held the book in those shadows for a few seconds and then handed it back to me. I noticed for the first time that the heavy metal music was no longer playing and the room was utterly silent. I opened the book and for a few seconds was confused to see that nothing seemed to have changed. The writing was still unintelligible to me and it felt no different. I lifted it to have a closer look and as I did I heard something clatter lightly onto the floor. I looked down to see bones, small animal bones from what I could tell, but each one was slightly bent and warped into shapes that bones should not form. As I stared at them, Mary Key took the book back from me and passed it through the shadows once again. More bones fell. She did this several times until there was a small pile formed at my feet. I didn't know what to say. By this point my head was pounding, and the feel of this cramped, dark place with its old tea and ancient books was starting to overwhelm me. All I could think to ask was whether my book did that as well. Mary Key laughed, and told me to look for myself. I began to look through those pages. I hadn't passed it through any shadows, but I knew something had changed. The woodcuts were starker somehow. In the background of each, there were new lines, thick and dark, stretching down from the sky. And then I came to the picture of that empty night. But now it had a stark, branching pattern carving through it. A pattern I recognized. My stomach dropped as though the floor was gone and I was falling. Struggling to stay standing, I muttered some excuse and went to leave. The ozone smell was back now, stronger than ever, and I had to get out. I fell down the stairs as I fled, badly bruising my hip and twisting my ankle painfully, but I didn't care. I limped from that place as quickly as I could, and hailed a taxi to take me home, fingers still locked in a death grip on my book. The branching pattern I had seen in that picture is known as the Lichtenberg figure. It shows the diverging paths of electricity on an insulating material such as glass or resin. I knew it from the pattern of scars on the back of my childhood friend who had been struck by lightning because of me. His name was Michael Crewe and we'd been eight years old at the time playing in a field near my grandmother's house. When the storm hit, Michael had said that we should go inside but I wanted to keep playing in the rain. I said that to him. And he just sighed and told me all right. It was as he said these words that he was struck. The sound when it happened was so loud that it drowned out his screams completely. But it was the smell that really stayed with me. That powerful ozone smell cut through with the scent of cooking meat. Michael survived in the end, but the scar, that branching Lichtenberg scar stayed with him for the rest of his life. When I got home, it took all of my concentration to get up the stairs, and when I finally made it onto my sofa, I couldn't shake that feeling as though I was falling, and the smell was so strong I could hardly breathe. I didn't look at the book. I just lay there. I felt as though I was waiting for something, but I had no idea what. By the time the knock on the door finally came, I was almost feeling composed enough to answer. Almost. It still took me almost five minutes to work up the nerve to open it. The knock did not come again, but I was positive that whatever was on the other side had not gone away. I reached over, grasped the handle and pulled the door open. Stood just over the threshold was a man in a long dark leather coat. His hair was dyed an artificial black, and he had the unshaven look of someone who hadn't slept in a couple of days. I asked him if he was Jared Key. He said that he was, and told me he'd like to see my book. I nodded silently, and he followed me inside, closing the door behind him. I took out the book and placed it on the table. Jared studied it for some time, but did not touch it. Finally he nodded and offered to buy it from me for five thousand pounds. I almost laughed when he said that. I would have sold it for a fraction of the amount, I might even have given it away, if it wasn't for the feeling that that wouldn't count, somehow, it's hard to explain. I didn't care what he planned to do with it, I just wanted to get rid of it, and so I agreed. Gerard didn't seem exactly happy of the news. He just nodded gravely and headed towards the door, saying he'd need to get the money in return. I didn't try to stop him. He left, closing the door behind him, and I was alone once again. The whole encounter lasted barely more than a minute. I sat there, waiting in silence for him to return. It was awful, and I needed to find some way to distract myself from the creeping smell, so I decided to get out my computer and see what I could find out about Gerard and Mary Key. Typing in their names, I don't know what sort of thing it was that I expected to find, but it certainly wasn't a news article from 2008 about Mary Key's murder. Police had broken in late September, after neighbours complained about the smell and found her lying dead in the study cause of death was apparently determined to be an overdose of painkillers, but it was judged a murder due to extensive post-mortem mutilation of the body. Large pieces of her skin had been peeled away and hung up to dry on fishing wire all around the room. The article had a picture of Mary Key, and there was no question that it was the same old woman that I had met in Morden, although in the photograph she seemed to have a full head of hair and lacked any visible tattoos. I frantically started searching for any other information I could find. Other news stories covered Jared's trial for his mother's murder. Apparently he had been acquitted after a significant piece of evidence was deemed inadmissible, although none of the reports seemed to know what exactly that evidence was. It was at this moment the knocking came again. Jared had returned. I opened the door... I thought briefly about not letting him in, but I knew he'd wait there as long as he needed to and I couldn't think for the reek of ozone that penetrated every one of my senses. I could not hide the terror on my face as he entered, but if he noticed the change in my demeanour, then he didn't react to it. He simply handed me an envelope filled with cash. I didn't even bother to count it before handing him the book. He looked at the title. Then flicked through it very quickly, before laughing just once and nodding, apparently to himself, as though he'd just come to some sort of decision. I had expected Jared to leave immediately, but instead he walked over to my metal waste paper basket and placed the book inside. He reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a bottle of lighter fluid and a box of matches. Within a few seconds, the book was ablaze and the smell vanished almost immediately. Even as my head began to clear I felt like I had to ask him why But he just shook his head My mother doesn't always know what's best for our family That was all he said before picking up the waste paper bin Now full of gently smouldering ashes I warned him it would be too hot to hold But he shrugged And said he'd had worse Then Jared Key left And I never saw him Or the book, again. Statement ends. If I never hear the name Jürgen Leitner again, it will be too soon. I suppose it was too much to hope that we'd finally dealt with all the remainder of his library after the incident in 1994, but it would have been useful if Gertrude had at least thought to add this statement to the current project file. Who knows how many other statements are in here that might deal with his books, or other currently active Institute projects. If my luck thus far is anything to go by, then I'd say it is unlikely this was an isolated example. The more I discover about this archive, the more it seemed Gertrude simply took the written statements and threw them into these files without even reading them. Given that she was head archivist for over fifty years, then that is this might be a bigger job than I originally thought. Regardless, most of the verifiable details in Mr. Swain's account seem to match up with our own researches. Martin couldn't find any records of Ex Altiora as a title in existent catalogues of esoteric or similar literature, so I assigned Sasha to double-check. Still nothing. Is it possible Mr. Swain got the title wrong? It seems unlikely, given the simplicity of it and the Occurrences, he describes, certainly sound like they could have been due to the proximity of a true Leitner tome. Still, all the other books from his library have been custom editions of known texts on demonology or the arcane. If there are Leitners out there that we haven't even heard of, I fear that may be cause for some small alarm. Useful details for follow-up are few and far between, however— Donation records at the Oxfam charity shop in Notting Hill Gate only have anonymous donations listed for books in October-November 2012. And obviously none of the staff recall the book. We've also been unable to locate Gerard Key at all. Aside from this encounter, he seems to have almost entirely disappeared following the end of his trial. The description Mr. Swain gives does appear to match file photos of Gerard and Mary Key, and from his description it sounds like he did find his way to what used to be pinhole books in Morden, although it has been closed since 2008 for obvious reasons, and no new tenants moved in till 2014. There was one interesting thing Tim found out, though, in the official police report on Mary Key's death. Apparently the drying sheets of skin had been written over in permanent marker, There was no transcription or translation of it in the report, but the language was identified to be Sanskrit. So it doesn't appear that we have any concrete leads to go on. Still, I will be bringing this up with Elias, and recommending that the search for any other missed books from the Leitner Library be made this Institute's highest priority. Jürgen Leitner has done the world enough harm. We must pursue all available avenues to ensure that he does no more. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by rustyquill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non commercial share alike international license. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell, Mike Lebeau and Murray Porter and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the RustyQuill, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening.
4: Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's Believe It or Not.
5: The most inhuman monarch in all history was King Deotarus I of Galaha. On his deathbed, to make sure his favorite son would succeed him, he imposed death sentences on his six others. I'll tell you about the man who was saved by a serpent. Count Zinzendorf was a Moravian missionary to America. One night he concentrated so intently on his reading that he didn't notice a rattlesnake crawling over his feet. A band of Indians had stalked the count in his tent in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania. They were preparing to a clithering over his feet. When the snake moved on without harming the count, the Indians fled in the... They had a charmed life, believe it or not. (laughs)
1: We are back. That was episode four of the Magnus Archives. Page Turner. We'll just kill the music right now. And So, uh, yeah, we're going to do a bit of post-production on this podcast. Because uh, I just kind of learned... Uh, well, not right now, literally. But um, there's a weakness in, in um, voice meter banana that I didn't know about which is basically if I switch over how I'm how I'm listening it basically causes about a second of dead air in the recording well and I assume second of dead air for you so we're going to fix that but I think I found a workaround courtesy of my Bluetooth speaker so there we go anyway We are going to get ready for our old-time radio... No! My mistake. We're going to get ready to do the uh, Strange Doctor Weird... The um, November 14th, 1944 broadcast of the Strange Doctor Weird... The Summoning of Chandor. Or Shandor, I don't know. I'll find out, just like you guys. So, without further ado... Um, off we go.
7: Adam for that. The Strange Dr. Weir.
8: Good evening. Come in, won't you? Why, what's the matter? Surely you're not nervous. Perhaps a story might calm your nerves a little. This story is about a strange spell and a stranger magic. I call it The Summoning of Shandor.
7: In a moment, you and I will take a deep breath and step into the strange world of Dr. Weir. And while you brace yourself, I'd like to do right by my sponsor and say something nice about Adam Hatt. That's not very hard to do, especially right now with the breathtaking fall and winter line of up-to-the-minute Adam Hat. Now on display in the thousands of Adam stores and authorized dealers from coast to coast. Why not go by your nearest Adam shop and take a quick look at some of that quality headgear? Believe me, when you buy an Adam, you're buying real quality and correct style, as well as perfect fit. An Adam is one of America's greatest tax values. Now, here's Dr. Weird.
8: My story, The Summoning Shandor begins in a curious search of a room at the top of a deserted lighthouse near San Francisco. There are three men in the room. One is bound tightly to a chair, his face wet with the perspiration of agony. The second is small and ferret like The third man is squat with a soft, healthy body and blubbery countenance that makes him look like a frog in his feet. Well, Compton, are you ready to tell us where your wife is yet? You'll never, You'll never find her presence. He's got a few reach. And he put another out under his fingernails, Troy. Oh. Pat out to make a pellet where so he's got a head. Now, Spot, I've got a better idea. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever heard of Shandar? That old Hindu who lives down in Chinatown? Yeah, yeah, I heard plenty about him. I don't want nothing to do with that guy. They tell me one little trick of his called the summoning. It's supposed to make anybody you want come to you, even from the furthest end of the earth. You, you mean he can bring him here even if we don't Yes, Spot. Suppose you go get this Shandor. We'll have him work his spell. And no matter where Thompson had his wife hidden, she'll come to us, whether she wants to or not. And so, half an hour later, the door of a tiny, strangely furnished room, deep in the heart of Chinatown, slowly opened. Yes. What is this key? Santos? I am called by that name. Mm-hmm. My boss has got job He wants you to work him a spouse. Mm-hmm. The one called the summoning. The summoning? That. Yeah. That is a powerful and dangerous charm not to be lightly attempted. And yet it has been ordained for a thousand years that I shall go with you and do as you wish. <laughs> a few minutes later, Shandor, followed by Spot, was climbing the end of steps. That led to the top of the deserted lighthouse, where Frog Stanton and his prisoner were waiting. Patton, this is madness. This obsession of yours about oh, Ellen, my wife? Yes, obsession. For five long years, I've waited for this moment. The moment when Ellen will come to me. Come to me and tell me she's willing to be mine. And I she does that, i will die tonight. Painfully slow. That's madness, Clinton. Just because you asked her to marry you once and she turned you down, it'd have been mine if you hadn't come along. No, no, she wouldn't. She was just sorry for you because you passed her I love the way I do. Like a frog. Yes. I know. She said it made her skin crawl just to have me touch her hand. You think I could forgive that? I went to prison because I was caught stealing money to have my face changed so she liked me. I told her that. She told you, and you told the police. You expect me to forgive that? Benton, listen to me. Forget this crazy idea of revenge. Turn me loose. I've her... told you the part of your life is for your wife, Ellen, to come to me gladly. Kiss me. Me, whose very touch made her skin crawl. If she won't do that, you'll die. Now, for the last time, where is she? She's where you can never find her. Never. You fool! Here. Johnson. Yeah, unconscious. Yeah. So, you yeah, think you can keep her hidden from me, do ah. you? What? Yeah? Ah, yep. It's you. Yeah. Go on, in, Shandler. I obey. You know what you're here to do? This man has chosen us. We have a friend, a young woman. She's lost, and we can't find her. We want to bring her here. You'll be well paid. I do not use my knowledge for pay. I have you no a picture of the one who is to be summoned? Yes, on. yes. Yes. Here. Here. He's young and fair. Now, get busy and get out here. And if your spells don't work, I'll throw you out that window down to the rocks below. Understand? Sandor has no fear of you. First, the intent must be lighted.
9: <laughs>
8: <coughs> don't stop. I'll Shut up, Spot. Get down below and wait there. Okay. First, you must call the one who is wanted and ask her to come. All right. Ellen Ellen. Come to me. Ellen come. Ellen come. Ellen come. Ellen.
7: We'll learn what happens in just a moment. First, I wonder if we could have a word with you, Dr. Weird. Yes, yes, young man. What is it? Well, your program really scares me tonight, Doctor. I, uh, I want you to give me something for my frenzied nerves. Just, a uh, say, what's that thing you're carrying around? Is it? Yes, a human skull. A skull, huh? Uh, look, Doc, ne- never mind about my nerves. Just go just away for a minute, and we'll all think about something nice. Gentlemen, I hope the next time you stroll by your nearest Adam hat store, you'll find time to step inside for a brief look around. Believe me, that fall and winter line of hats just arrived really represents a fine assortment of quality. Prices, you'll notice, run from only three forty-five dollars up to $10.00. Try your size in a famous Adam Five, one of America's greatest hat values, which features the most correct, up-to-the-minute styles in genuine fur up Men choose Adam because an Adam just naturally does something for a fellow. The ladies certainly agree with that. That's why so many ladies are giving their men Adam Hat gift certificates for Christmas. That way, he makes his own selection of size, color, shape at any time he pleases. Just by presenting the gift certificate at any one of the thousands of Adam Hack Shops and authorized dealers from coast to coast. This witness, madam, give him an Adam. Now, stop the it.
8: Now for the rest of my story, the summoning of Shandor. In the tiny room at the top of the deserted lighthouse, when the missing Shandor sounds the gong. which summons the missing. From wherever they may be. Ellen come. Ellen come. Ellen come. She comes. She is almost here. Well, well, that's, that gong. What is it? Oh, you come too. <laughs> it's Andor comes. And even summoning your wife. Ellen is coming. It's almost here. No. No, it's not possible. It mustn't be. But it is. It's almost here now. No. No. Be not distressed, my friend. She comes gladly. Uh, what is she saying? that she neither see nor hear what is to happen. Look into my eyes. Uh, uh, there. Uh, now there is a veil over your
0: senses.
8: Uh, 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 what's he, it? She is She whom you have summoned has come to you dressed in white and veiled as a bride. Ella, you come.
9: You called me, and I
8: came. Yes. I've been with five years for this moment, Ellen.
9: I've come. I was glad to come.
8: Let me lift this baby away so I can see you. Your face. Your eyes. Your hair.
9: I will lift Oh. Oh. Now, take me in your arms. You summoned me. You cannot turn from me now. No. Stay away from me. I'll shoot you. I'll you. I'll kill you. You summoned me. I shall remain with you as long as you live. You're still coming toward me. And I saw the body hit you. Why are you dead? You summoned me. We shall be together always now. Always. No. No. Don't touch me. No. You summoned me and I came. Now I must go back. Go back.
8: Yes, you must return once more from whence you came.
9: It was a great distance, but I was glad to come. Tell my husband not to grieve. I was glad to come. I was glad, but now I must go back.
8: Now, my friend, you may awake him. Well, Shundle. What happened? Oh, sorry. This flowered like one whose soul was evil still, uh, gone. Then your wife came to him, and he saw her face. Imagine overtook the King, He leaped to his death on the rock below. Her face. It was horribly mutilated from the accident in which she was killed. She was buried in her wedding dress and veil. She said she was glad to come.
9: But she couldn't have come. She's dead. She's been buried for years.
8: Feel calmer now? Quite a powerful spell, wasn't it? So powerful that it could even call the dead from the grave.
9: Oh, you don't believe a word of it?
8: I'm glad. You'll sleep better tonight. But perhaps. Drop in on me again soon. I'm always home. Let's look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weir. <laughs>
7: Man will be back in a moment with a word about next Tuesday night's program. Meanwhile, between now and then, why not buy an Adam Hat Christmas gift certificate for the man in your life? These certificates come inside a miniature hat box with a miniature hat and can be redeemed at any time at any of the thousands of Adam Hack shops and authorized dealers throughout the nation. Give an Adam gift certificate so that he may choose exactly the size, color, and shape he wants at any Adam Hat store or authorized dealer. Prices $345 to $10. For Christmas, madam, give him an Adam. Now, Dr. Weir.
8: I hope you'll drop in on me again next week. I want to tell you a story I call Death in the Everglades. A story about a young couple who couldn't wait for their uncle to die and leave them his money. They went into the Everglades to get it. What their uncle's uh, uh, friend persuaded them to say. Because they. uh... Just the rest of the story will have to wait until your next visit. Good night.
7: Join us. Next week at the same time for another visit with The Strange Dr. Weird. The Strange Dr. Weird, directed by Josh McGregor, is presented by the makers of Adam Hats, the hats that are always top in quality. This is Mutual.
4: Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the truth. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. <laughs>
5: The largest creature that ever walked the earth was the Stegosaurus. It weighed approximately 80,000 pounds, yet its brain weighed only three and brain and its tail to control its massive hind legs. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the strange fate of Lord Brooke. Lord Brooke bombarded the Cathedral of Litchfield, England to rubble. He then assured his shocked troops that the act would be acknowledged by a sign from heaven. If he was expecting a sign, he certainly got much more than he bargained. The building, known as St. Chad's Cathedral, was destroyed on St. Chad's Day. And then, a few moments later, a bullet that pierced one of his eyes. Believe it or not. <laughs>
1: And We are back. We're almost at the end of this week's episode and uh, Yeah, so bet you didn't know that I made a famous line of hats in the 1940s, did you? I'm older than you think I'm just very well preserved Anyway uh, We'll kill the music And uh, so yeah, that brings us to Um, our old-time radio episode for this week. Uh, Unfortunately, there haven't been a lot of... um, There haven't been any adaptations of Lafcario Hearn's um, works. Uh, I looked. I looked hard. And I couldn't find any. So I found something that's close. I found a ghost story from Suspense. This will be the June 23rd, 1949 broadcast of Suspense. The episode is entitled Ghost Hunt. And it is um, famous for being one of the most scary episodes of Suspense, as well as all-time radio. So yeah, we're going to have some fun. Anyway... We're going to get to that, and then when we come back, of course, our Pod People segment, which is directly tied to our our author for tonight. So, yeah, we will be right back after uh, this.
10: and its 60,000 dealers and service stations present... Suspense.
4: Tonight, Autolite brings you Mr. Ralph Edwards in Ghost Hunt, a suspense play produced and directed by Anton M. Leader.
10: replace worn-out narrow-gap spark plugs with a set of those new wide-gap Autolite resistor spark plugs. Your motor will idle smoother, give better performance on leaner gas mixtures, actually save gas. These winning benefits are all made possible by a newly developed Autolite 10,000-ohm resistor built right into every Autolite resistor spark plug, making practical a wider spark-gap setting. And that's what does the trick. What's more, Autolite Resistor spark plugs with this exclusive Autolite Resistor have greatly increased electrode life and cut down on radio and television interference. So, folks, see your Autolite dealer and have him replace old, worn-out, narrow-gap spark plugs with a set of the new Autolite Resistor spark plugs. Remember, you're always right with Autolite. And also remember, the Autolite Suspense Show is now on television. Every Tuesday night in many parts of the country.
4: And now... Auto Light presents Ralph Edwards in a tale well-calculated to keep you in... Suspense!
11: Yeah, didn't that leave you high, huh? Left me feeling treetop tall. That was Louis Armstrong's I Can't Give You Anything But Love. And that's all we have time for on the Hot and Mellow Hour tonight. Yes, 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 this is Smiley Smith, your favorite disc jockey, I hope, a hope, in the hot and mellow hour, home for this evening. I'll be back again tomorrow night, minus the music, but with a little surprise for you. Tomorrow night, Friday night, as you know, is stunt night here at Station WXP, and have I got a stunt for you. Last week, if you remember, I planted my wire recorder in the steam room at a lady's Turkish bath and let, let you listen in on the playback, remember?
0: <laughs>
11: well, tonight, as soon as I leave the studio, do you know where I'm going, hmm? Your friend Smiley is going to spend the night in a haunted house on a spook hunt. You heard me, a spook hunt in a haunted house. I'm bringing my little old wire recorder along with me, and if you tune in tomorrow evening at this time, you'll learn what it's like to spend a night in a haunted house. Ain't that something? <laughs> a real haunted house. No kidding. Four people are known to have committed suicide there. So tune in tomorrow night and share a real thrill with your old pal Smiley, I must be crazy, Smith. Good night. <laughs>
12: cigar, Mr. Thorpe? I got some cigars in the dash there. No. Well, no reason for you to carry a chip on your shoulder, Mr. Thorpe. Oh, really? Well, I don't like this fool stunt. Well, I don't see it as a fool stunt at all. I really don't. I think it's the only way you're going to unload this house. Ordinary selling methods won't work in a case like this. I don't forget the reputation saddling this house for suicide since 1939. You know what people call it, the death trap. Yes. A lot of nonsense. Sure, but try to convince people of that. Anyway, when this disc jockey offered me this chance to kill all the rumors about the death or dr- about the property, I just naturally jumped and took him up at it. Especially since it don't cost a cent. You sure about that? I'm not liable for a penny. Not a cent. We're doing him a favor letting him use the place, he said. Thank me for the chance last night when I drove him out here. So one hand washes the other, as the feller says. He got a chance to pull off a stunt. The wire recording will prove the people the property is a number one, and we increase the chance of selling the place. Well, as long as it doesn't cost me anything. Not a thing. He's using his own recorder, and I'm paying for the rental of a couple of walkie-talkies he hooked up to it. Well, uh, what about this, uh, Reed? Does he charge anything? He comes gratis, too. Hmm. Dr. Reed is, uh, whatchamacallit, a psychic investigator. Belongs to a couple of societies that do nothing but hunt ghosts. <laughs> He showed me articles he's written about it in their magazine. Uh. Well, here's the house. Yeah, looks real nice in the sunshine, don't it? Yeah, man, smell that sea breeze. You don't have to sell me. Well, let them know we're here. <laughs>
0: yeah,
12: probably asleep, up all night and everything. <laughs> Why don't they come out? Do you think they've gone? Well, I told them last night I'd pick them up around eleven. Uh, Smith! Smith! Hey, Smiley!
0: Dr. Reed!
12: Yeah, fast asleep, I guess. We better go in and wake him up. <laughs> Of course, they may have taken the bus back to town. No, no, no. It's a two-mile hike to the main highway. Smith! Hey, uh, Smiley. Where are you? Wake up. You don't suppose, uh, do you? Oh, no, no. Uh, Smith? Uh, Dr. Reed? What's that, that, uh, clicking noise from in there? Well, it's his wire recorder. He left it running. <laughs> These machines cost a lot of money. Doesn't he care if he uses up his batteries? Well, where is he? And where's this Reed? Maybe they're upstairs. Uh, Smith? Hey, anybody home? They must have walked to the highway and taken the bus. Well, you wouldn't have left these machines. Well, where are they, then? Where are they? Now, now, no. Don't get excited, Mr. Thorpe. Don't tell me not to get excited. If something's happened to them in my house, I'm liable. Well, you try this side. I'll try that. All right. Uh, Smith? Hey, Smiley. Smith? Smith? Oh. McDonald, come here. It'll work, what? it? Oh. No. Ree. Dr. Ree. No, no, don't touch him, Mr. Thorpe. You'll get your hands off. Look. Blood. Is he dead? I can still feel his pulse. We better get him to a hospital fast. Mr. Thorpe? No, no, thanks. Why not try to relax? The nurse said Reed would be all right as soon as he's had a blood transfusion. You told the radio station to be sure and call us as soon as they had any word about Smith? Yes, I told them. Uh, Why don't you sit down? No, I'm all at sixes and sevens. What do you suppose happened out there last night? Uh, We're going to know in just a second, just as soon as I can get this recorder set up. You don't suppose Smith and Reed got into a fight, do you? Yeah, there. Huh? A fight? I don't know. Well, what's wrong? Won't it work?
11: Yeah, it works. Uh, take it easy. One, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. There. Testing. List. One, two, three. All set, Dr. Reed? Mr. McDonald? Hey, eh?
0: Okay.
11: Here we go. <clears throat> this is Smiley Smith speaking. Smiley Smith, the ghost hunter. I don't know whether to hope this will turn out to be a success for the sake of the program or a failure for my own sake. Anyway, all the preparations have been made now, and it's up to the spooks. I better tell you where we are. Right now, we're standing on the lawn of a house about 12 miles above Malibu Beach. The ocean is 100 feet away, straight down. The house is perched on a cliff, and there's a sheer drop of about 100 feet right into the old Pacific. Maybe you can hear the surf pounding. I'll turn up the volume. Hear it? Now... I'm going to have you meet two gentlemen who are here with me. Incidentally, we're the only people around for miles and miles. First, I'd like you to meet Dr. Clarence Reed of the British and American Psychical Research Guild. Dr. Reed is a famous investigator of uh, psychic phenomena, and I'm very honored to be associated with him on this ghost hunt. He's smiling in an embarrassed sort of way. you much too kind, Mr. Smith. Dr. Reed has conducted experiments in this field with such great believers in spiritualism as Oliver Lodge and Arthur Conan Doyle. He looks a bit like Santa Claus. He's short and stocky. You don't object, do you, Dr. Reed? <coughs> no, 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 indeed. And he has a magnificent white beard, a truly great beaver. Dr. Reed is so enthusiastic about ghost hunting that he got out of a sick bed this evening to be with us. <coughs> Excuse me.
13: My lungs. Mm-hmm. I was uh, gassed in the First World War.
11: Yeah. Uh, anyway, Dr. Reed and I are here on the lawn looking at the house. Can't see much. It's around, oh, 11 p.m. now. Seems to be a rambling sort of house, two stories high. Since it was built, there have been four suicides here. Is that right? Uh, That's right. Uh, Now, into the mic, please. Uh, Four suicides since 1939. I better tell them who you are so they won't think you're a ghost. (laughs) Standing with the doc and me is a real estate agent, Mr. Charles McDonald. He handles this property, and he can tell you a lot more about it than I can. Well, the house was built by a man named Marcus, Toby
12: Marcus, an orange grower built the house as a wedding present for his wife. A month after they moved in, she took her own life. On the day of her funeral, he committed suicide the same way. There have been two other cases since then, and D- i Did here. they
11: all uh, jump into the ocean?
12: Yeah, yeah, all four of them, right over there. Uh-huh. The last one was actually seen doing it about three years ago. He was seen running like all get out the edge of the cliff, and he was shouting and laughing and yelling as though there was people at his side running right along with him. You kidding? No, it's fact. He was laughing and yelling and running, and when he got to the edge, uh, right over there, he jumped and never came above water. As good an argument against cold baths as ever I've heard. <laughs> uh, since then, people just refuse to live in this house. Silly, I call it. Anyway, if you and Dr. Reed find any sign of a spook, I'll advise the owner to pull the house down and rebuild. But if you don't find anything, I'm hoping this will convince folks that here's a real buy. Yeah, okay, Mr. Smith, you and the doctor are
11: on your own. I'll be by in the morning to pick you up around 11. Goodbye, Mr. McDonald. I hope there's something left for you to pick up in the morning. (laughs) Well, it's almost pitch black, folks. And I guess Dr. Reed and I ought to begin. I don't believe in ghosts, never have. But what I say is this. If you're dead set on looking for them, this is a dandy place to do it. So long. Mr. McDonald just checked out. And then there were two. Well, three, hmm? Oh, my dog, yeah. Uh, Folks, I have my dog, Jeff, with me. He's a wire-haired terrier, three years of age, and he can talk. Yeah, say hello, Jeff. Come on, Jeff, say hello. Come on. Well, anyway, he's a wire-haired terrier, and he's three years old. Uh, Shall we go inside now, Dr. Reed? I was about to suggest it. Now, uh, how do we hunt ghosts, Doctor? How do we do it? Well, we don't really hunt them. If
13: there should be any in the house, they will come to us. How cozy. And please, not ghosts. Do not refer to them as ghosts. We know them as
11: apparitions. Now remember, I've no desire to hurt their feelings. Where ghosts are concerned, I say live and let live. Well, we've opened the front door now. Maybe you heard the hinge squeak a little. Now we're standing here looking in. Can't see much. It smells sort of musty and damp. Matter, but... Jeff. What's the matter, boy? Jeff. Oh, come on now. Come on. My dog seems to object to entering this house. He has all four feet braced and he's straining against the leash.
13: Perhaps he senses something we don't. Like apparitions, maybe? Perhaps. It's not unusual. Animals lack the veneer of sophistication we humans possess
11: and are more sensitive to such a Yeah, come on, Jeff. Now, stop this nonsense. He probably smells a mouse or rat or something. Come on, Jeff. We're going in whether you like it or not. There's a short entrance hall, and over there at the end of it is a flight of stairs leading to the second floor. Jeff! And uh, over here at the left is what seems to be a large reception room. We're entering this large room now. There are windows over there, French windows, and through them I can see the ocean. The electricity hasn't been turned on, so all I have to see by is a flashlight. Not a very powerful one at that Dr. Reed is now adjusting his walkie-talkie. It's hooked up to my recorder so that he can cut in while he's hunting and tell us what he's found. Here's a few words from Doc before he sets forth on his
4: investigation through the house.
13: Ladies and gentlemen... (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Mr. Smith has introduced me as a ghost hunter. He spoke, I think, in a spirit of skepticism and, and levity. I'd like to assure you all that my purposes here are serious. I have spent my entire life seeking reliable proof of the appearances of apparitions.
11: Have you ever seen any, ever?
13: I have seen phenomena which lead me to believe in the possibility of their existence, although I have never seen any. I account myself sensitive to the evidence of their existence. This house, for example, affects me profoundly. It doesn't seem to affect you in the same way.
11: I'm not too happy about all this, if that's what you mean.
13: You are not psychic, and therefore not sensitive to these matters as I am. I imagine the question in the minds of those of you listening to us is... Shall we find apparitions? I don't know. But I feel they are here and that they are even I sense danger. I shall soon know.
11: Dr. Reed's leaving the room now to make a tour of the house. First thing I'm going to do is open the windows and let some fresh air in. Ah, it Feels better already. Cooler anyway. I know that. Ow! I... Oh it's... A bat, a, ba- a bat just flew flew into the room. I, I think it's a bat, not a bird. I didn't actually see it, just its, its shadow as it fanned my face. There it is again. It touched me as it passed.
0: Oh, oh, oh. Jeff,
11: Jeff, Jeff, come back here. Jeff, you fool dog, come back here. Dr.
4: Reed? Dr. Reed? Dr. Reed? Yeah. Suspense. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Ralph Edwards in Radio's outstanding Theater of Thrills. Suspense. Hey, hello, hello. Snap out of it. huh?
10: Oh, oh. Uh, I'm reading a letter about the new wide gap Autolite resistor spark plugs. Huh? Oh. It's for Mrs. Clark Perry, right here in Hollywood. She says, our 1948 station wagon has given constant trouble. Finally, the garage man said all the difficulty was spark plugs, and he installed a set of auto light resistor spark plugs. Now the car runs beautifully. The very first time my husband has been really pleased. Well, smart garage man. Smart people to take his advice. Half, you know, as more and more people learn about wide gap auto light resistor spark plugs and how they make an engine idle smoother, give better performance on leaner gas mixtures, actually save on gas, why, then more people will replace old, worn-out, narrow-gap spark plugs with sensational new wide-gap auto-light resistor spark plugs. Any more letters like that, Harlow? Plenty, Hap, plenty. Why, here's another one from New York City. Oh, uh, read it to me later, Harlow. We haven't time
4: because here's suspense. And now... Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Ralph Edwards as Smiley Smith in Ghost Hunt, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Oh, oh,
11: Jeff. Jeff, Jeff, come back here! Jeff, you fool dog, come back here! Dr. Reed, Dr. Reed, Dr. Reed!
13: speaking. What is it, Smith?
11: Uh, Jeff has run off. My dog, he, he jumped through the window and ran off.
13: Oh, so? I told you he said something about this house, didn't I?
11: Yeah, you want to come and see if you can determine what it was exactly that set him off? Uh,
13: soon. I am making my way slowly up the stairs toward the second floor now. I'm halfway up. I'll be down with you soon.
11: Well, folks, my dog's run away. You probably heard him howling. He jumped through the window and took off. Never did anything like that before. Frightened by the bat, I guess. Personally, alone here in this big room, I can understand how he must have felt. This isn't a cheerful spot by any means. I may not be psychic, but I sure have a feeling this house doesn't want us here.
13: Read again. (coughs) Excuse me. I have something of great interest to report. I'm now standing in an alcove on the second floor trying to recover my breath. As I reached the head of the stairs, I felt what I think is a definite psychic manifestation. I felt suddenly as though I had been punched in the solar plexus. That's the only way I can describe it. At the same time, I began to perspire. Uh, My head is still swimming slightly, uh, and I have difficulty in swallowing. My pulse rate is around 110 in a minute. The sense of evil is very strong. I feel very... uh, What shall I say? Profoundly depressed.
11: Do you want me up there?
13: Uh, No. I prefer to remain up here alone. The presence of a disbeliever such as you might interfere with my investigation.
11: Folks, I like you to get a picture of what it's like here. It's very quiet, for one thing. I've never been in such a quiet place. And it's pretty dark. No light except my flashlight. Tell you what, you go now and douse all the lights you have on. Go ahead, put out the lights, and that'll give you a clearer feeling of how it is here with me. Go ahead, put out the lights. Hey, did, did you hear that? <laughs> Real estate agent told me I'd probably hear rats and mice in the walls. Well, I can certainly hear them now. Even you can hear him, I think. It's as though...
13: Dr. Reed speaking. I've been working my way toward the front room, the one directly above the one in which Mr. Smith is now. The vibrations have become stronger, and more and more pronounced as I approach it. I think I am on the verge of an important discovery.
11: Important discovery. Did you get that? Now I can hear Dr. Reed moving about in the room above. I don't suppose you can. Have a try anyway, huh? Hear him? I... Hope he finishes his investigation soon, because quite frankly, I, I'd like to get out of here. I can well imagine people becoming unhinged in this place. Right now, I find myself pretty jumpy, not being very brave, am I? It's being alone in this room down here that does it. This this darned old house. It's it's a very. I mean, you know, the atmosphere. It's so very.
13: I wish only to make this hurried report before continuing with the investigation in this room. I have carefully sounded out all the parts in this room, and the emanations are most strong from what appears to be a closet, before which I am now standing. As soon as I open the door to this closet, I will have, I think, a thing of great interest to communicate. I find no key to the lock, and so I will attempt to remove the hinges with my penknife, and I will tell you what I find when I open it.
11: I'll tell you what it would cost to get me to open that door. In the basement at Fort... (laughs) There's that door! bat again it seems to like me the way it keeps each time it passes it touches my face or my neck with its wings (laughs) smelly things bats I don't suppose they bathe very often if at all I wonder get away you bat that bat will be the death of me yeah, it's like a jingle, isn't it? Battle be the death of me, the death of me, the death of me, battle be the death of me. It isn't far from London, no, that isn't the way it goes. It's uh, come down to um, Q in lilac time, in lilac time, in lilac time. Come down to Q in lilac time, it isn't far... I haven't thought of that since I was a kid in grammar school. Gee, I had a lonely childhood, When you come right down to it. I mean, oh, that's my affair, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It most certainly is.
13: I have succeeded in removing the hinges to the door, and I find inside it is not a closet, but much larger. It is, I think, a dressing room. I have not yet been inside, but I am about to enter.
11: Uh, what was I talking about? Uh, oh, yeah, bats. Well, uh, the bat flying back and forth in this room. Did you hear that? Did, did you hear it? Dr. Reed must have knocked something over in the dressing room. A chair, a chair, yeah, a heavy chair by the sound of it. The chair, or whatever it was, must have fallen right, right over my head. That's the way it sounded. I I, I can see a small stain forming right on the ceiling, right right over my head. (gasps) Something (laughs) ran across my foot just a rat, I think it was. I've always hated rats. Most people do, of course. That stain up there bothers me. It's gotten so big so soon. I think I'll take a chance and bother Reed and ask him what it is. Dr. Reed. Reed. Can you hear me? Are you all right? Hello? Allie... Didn't answer. I, I, I think he's just a little bit deaf. I think so. What do you suppose he's found? Huh? I'm afraid this is rather dull for you listeners. I, I'm not finding it so, of course. There. Hey, I, I heard him cough. Did you hear that cough? Hope he's all right. He's he, he got out of a sick bed to come here this evening. You know, he was gassed in the First World War, and this place is beginning to get on my nerves a wee bit. Just a teensy weensy bit. <laughs>
13: Speaking, I. Uh...
11: Hello? He switched off. That's the bad coffee he's got. I feel so lonely. I've been alone so much in my life. Not so much now, of course, but when I was younger, I was alone so much of the time, you know, struggling to get ahead, living in a hall bedroom, wondering where my next meal is coming from. I get the blues just remembering it. it Seem sad, young people having to spend so much time alone. Sad for old people, too, of course. I'm saying, of course, a lot. Of course, I am. Hey, that stain on the ceiling, it's grown amazingly. It, it, it's actually beginning to drip. I mean, form bubbles. They'll start dropping soon. Colored bubbles, they seem to be. Odd-shaped stain, like a, a, a body lying on its back with its arms stretched out. <laughs> it's cheerful. <laughs> oh. I'll certainly advise Mr. McDonald to have this place pulled down. I'll go upstairs in a minute or two to see how Dr. Reed's making out. You know, listeners, I, I really believe I'd go completely crazy if I had to stay here much longer. Wears you down. That's exactly what it does. It wears you down. It's so close and musty in here I feel sort of trapped. Huh. Don't know why I said that. That's that's what they call this place, you know, the death trap. There, what did I tell you? That stain started to drip drops. Drip drops, drip drops, drip drops, drip. I'll catch the next one with my hand. Let's <laughs> Reed! Dr. Reed! I'm going upstairs now, listeners. I'm afraid something has happened to Dr. Reed. I'm not kidding now. I mean, this is on the level. Which room could it be now? Right? No, right, right. This is it, I think. <laughs> oh, evening, gentlemen. And and madam? I'm so glad to see you. I, I, I was just aching to see somebody. Anybody. I, I've been so lonely down there. Uh, what have you done with the doctor, huh? I know. I know he's been hurt. See the color of the bubble on my hand? What have you done with him? Make way, please, gentlemen. Make way. Well, this isn't the, the funniest darn thing. <laughs> this can't be Dr. Reed lying here. He didn't have a red beard. Now, don't crowd me, gentlemen. Don't, don't crowd me, please. Huh? You want me to go where with you? You want me to do what?
0: Speak up,
11: gentlemen. To the cliffs. Down to the cliffs. You mean right now? <laughs> well, well, all right, if you'll come with me. I don't want to be alone anymore. You will come with me? All of you? All four of you? You too, ma'am? Oh, good. Come on, then. To the cliff! To the cliff! To
0: the cliff! To the
13: He jumped over the cliff.
12: He jumped over the cliff. McDonald, he jumped over...
14: Mr. McDonald, Mr. Thorpe, you may come in to see Dr. Reed now.
12: What? Huh? Uh-huh.
14: Dr. Reed is conscious. You may see him now.
12: Is... Is he able to talk?
14: Just for a few minutes. In here.
13: Come in. Come in, gentlemen. How are you, Dr. Reed? We've been waiting to see. Yes. And I must apologize, gentlemen. I had a most unfortunate accident. Hemorrhage.
12: Uh, hemorrhage? Yes. My lungs, you know. Well, now, gentlemen... hemorrhage Dr. Reed, what happened in that house? What happened to Smith? We've just been listening to a playback of the recordings you made out there. Smith? Well, isn't he with you? We've just heard the recording, Dr. Reed. Smith jumped over the cliff. Into the ocean.
13: Oh, that poor boy.
12: Dr. Reed, will you please tell us what happened? From what we heard on the recording, there were... Ghosts in that house. Ghosts? I didn't
13: see any ghosts. But Smith, what about him? If he went over the cliff, it was fear that drove him over. But Gentlemen, I... I didn't see any ghosts. As for that unfortunate young man, who can say now what he saw or thought he saw?
4: Thank you, Ralph Edwards, for displaying your versatility by appearing as guest star on Suspense. Say, Harlow, that Edwards does everything. Oh, half no does. Don't use that word
10: on
11: our Auto Light show. Oh, come now, Harlow. I can make you use that word as you call it. How? <laughs> Now, don't you say that Autolite resistor spark plugs make your car engine idle smoother? Yes, but... And your car gives better performance on leaner gas mixtures. Saves gas? Sure does. I mean, do. <laughs> I mean, does. <laughs> Aren't
10: we devils? <laughs> Ralph, you tricked me. Well, anyhow, it does my heart good to tell people that Autolite resistor spark plugs are ignition engineered by Autolite, which makes more than 400 products for cars, trucks, airplanes, and boats in 28 plants from coast to coast. Autolite also makes complete electrical systems for many makes of America's finest cars. Batteries, spark plugs, generators, starting motors, spark plug wire, battery cable, coils, distributors. All ignition engineered to fit together perfectly, work together perfectly, because they're a perfect team. The lifeline of your car. So folks, don't accept electrical parts that are supposed to be as good. Remember, you're right with Autolite.
4: And now here again is Ralph Edwards.
11: I want to thank Tony Leader and his great cast of actors for helping to make my appearance on Suspense a very pleasant consequence. (laughs) Like all of you, I'm a great Suspense fan, and I'm looking forward to next week when radio's outstanding theater of thrills brings you Joseph Cotton in The Day I Died, another gripping study in... Suspense.
10: Tonight's Suspense play was adapted for radio by Walter Newman from an original story by H.R. Wakefield with music composed by Lucian Morawek and conducted by Lud Bluskin. The entire production was under the direction of Anton M. Leder. Make it a point to listen next Thursday to Suspense. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Remember next Thursday, same time, here Joseph Cotton in The Day I Died.
7: You can buy Autolite resistor spark plugs, Autolite staple batteries, Autolite electrical parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night.
10: This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
1: And we are back for our final part of this episode four of dry Time Stories. There we go, and that is our weekly pod people segment. Um, this was a bit easier to find a pair to pair with our story because this is a podcast that specializes in sharing, um. Japanese ghost stories, urban legends, stuff like that. And I really enjoy this. I listen to it, uh, you know, when the, again, there's a lot of podcasts I subscribe to and I do prioritize certain podcasts over others. And if I do, that's, that's not saying I don't like your podcast. It's just, you know, a dude only has so many hours in the day, you know. So there you have it. Uh, But this podcast is called Koabana. And um, it comes from the. uh, It's basically a portmanteau of two Japanese words: Um, kawaii, or scary or frightening, and um, hanashi, or story so there you have it uh the host is tara devlin who lives in japan she's originally from australia and as you can tell she has you know i don't know i don't know what it is but i gotta say i love the australian accents for some reason i've got a friend tom davis who's from australia and it's always a delight to talk to him But, uh, yeah, so unfortunately there wasn't a trailer, so we only have the two-minute um, sample. And this is from episode three. So we're going to get to this.
14: This happened when I was in elementary school. I think it was a real supernatural phenomenon. So I was a member of the Boy Scouts. Scal- this happened when I was in elementary school. I think it was a real supernatural phenomenon. So I was a member of the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts are a group that often goes camping and does various other outdoor activities. One day during the summer holidays, we went for a 10 km hike on the outskirts of our hometown. We decided on several checkpoints at various places along the route. We made a small shrine on the corner of the residential area a checkpoint but when we started hiking and actually got there, there were two shrines. They sat on either side of the crossroads, like mirror images of each other, but there was only one shrine gate mark on the map, so I thought it was kind of strange. In any case, we went towards the shrine that matched up with the one on the map and took a break. The shrine grounds had a main hall and one smaller building, There was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary about it. Then our leader, a junior high school student, said to us, Hey, let's go check out that other shrine. We were all intrigued by it, so there were no objections. We noticed something strange as soon as we passed under the shrine gate. It smelt fishy. The smell of rotting fish pierced our nostrils. Everyone else seemed to notice it as well. They screwed up their faces and were looking around for the source of the smell. I took a quick look around. It was exactly the same as the other shrine. On closer inspection, however, I noticed the sliding door to the main hall was slightly ajar. I thought there might be something dangerous inside, so I was ready to leave, but our leader went straight up the stone path towards it. You guys wait here. He disappeared inside. We waited several minutes, but he didn't return.
1: And there you have it. So if you want to listen to the rest of that story and the other two that are along with it, that is Coabana. You will find a link to Tara A. Devlin's website in our show notes along with, uh, might I also point out, a link to our brand new Patreon. So if you enjoy the show and you would like to help um, aid in the development of more shows, uh, please consider uh, signing up for a monthly donation. We would greatly appreciate the support. And like I said, um, every little bit helps us to improve the show that we're currently doing to expand and do more stuff, you know... So there you have it. So we're going to wrap up for this week so I can get to work on the podcast. Again, everyone, thank you for listening. All, I believe, nine of you. Yes, nine people listening. Very impressive, although last week we did have an impressive 13 listeners at the end of the program. Thank you all for listening as always. And I just would like to remind you that all incidental music heard on this program is courtesy of TabletopAudio.com com music for your D game and or podcast thank you very much TabletopAudio.com. thank you listeners oh wait what story will we do next week that is an excellent question um that i'm gonna be honest i ha i'm not prepared to announce that because i haven't had a chance to decide unfortunately um I've been fighting a tooth infection, and my mind has been on a lot of other stuff. Namely, the horrible pain that I've been in. So, uh, we'll have an announcement for our next episode. Um, Friday night, during It Came From Cleveland, Michelle will will make that promotion, I think. I'll try and get her to. She did a great job last week. <coughs> And before we go, I just remind everyone about the great programming here that you can hear here on Radio for Humans. Of course, tomorrow night we have time for go to bed with Kenny Peck and the Warm uh, warmborn Forest finished last week. I don't know if they've got anything new lined up to replace it. We'll find. I'll find out with you tomorrow. Of course, Friday night, some ten p.m. Eastern. It came from Cleveland. Where you'll hear a brand new mythical moment from yours cruelly. Saturday will be Paul's memory bank. And of course, Monday and Wednesday at 8:30, and Tuesday at 8:30 a.m. and Tuesday at 8 p.m. The Tim Coromel show. Oh, and uh, it, uh, from the bunker tomorrow night, immediately following. Time for go to bed. I forgot about that. Um, And of course, don't forget Second Chance Sundays, starting every Sunday at 12 p.m. Eastern. A nine-hour block of all of our original Radio for Humans programming, including this one. So there you have it. Anyway, that's it for us tonight. Thank you very much for listening. I do apologize for the late start and for the technical errors. Again, um... I'm basically having to relearn all the intricacies of these programs that I use. Um, But I I think this new audio program is going to be great. Um, So there you have it. Everyone have a great week. And uh, again, thank you for listening to yours cruelly. And uh, unpleasant dreams.